Well, we're carrying on this morning with our study in the book of Genesis. We are, I think, this, uh, my calculation is right, this is the eighth session, and uh, we've got as far as chapter five this morning. Now, chapter five is probably one of the most exciting chapters in the Bible. Turn to it, if you will, if you've got your Bibles. You can see on the, the screen there the, the way that often scholars break down the book of Genesis. We've got those first uh, 11 chapters really deal with the early world, the creation, the fall, Cain and Abel and so on, genealogy of Noah, uh, which we're going to be looking at in a moment, the flood, then the next section we'll be moving on to next week, Lord willing, and then we get to the Tower of Babel, the dividing of the nations. Uh, a lot of uh, people will laugh at the 11, first 11 chapters. They'll tell you that it's myth, that it's uh, all poetic, that it's not really meant to be taken seriously, that we can't trust these things. And uh, quite comical, really, because the, the evidence is overwhelming in favor of the authenticity, the historicity of these things. Uh, the second part goes on, uh, looking at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and so on. And generally more accepted, although there was an occasion when I was uh, back in, in Deal some years ago uh, that a, a local minister uh, had gone to a school and was basically questioning the resurrection. So a friend of mine, uh, who's also um, uh, serves as a pastor in the church that, that he's at, uh, came and said to me, look, I think we should go and have a word. So we said, okay, so we went, made an appointment to go and speak to this minister, and we sat down with him. And uh, we said, look, can we just start to talk about, we're not sure whether we heard right, but it sounded like that you were questioning the, the resurrection. And sure enough, he was. So we started to talk to him about what he thinks the Bible is and how much do you take, how much do you trust. And really his conclusion was, well, we really can't take any of it as serious. You know, it's the spiritual truths that we can glean. I mean, to what end, he didn't really explain. But we can glean these spiritual truths. And, you know, he started getting to the question about, I asked him about creation. Because it was a good place to start with somebody. I said, do you believe what the Bible says about creation? You know, the opening chapter of the Bible. Oh, no, no, no. I said, well, why not? He said, well, because science has shown that, and off he went. So after explaining that science really hasn't shown that, and he got to this kind of, well, the problem is, he said, we don't know really whether any of these people really actually lived. I said, well, okay, let me just, just go through. I said, where can we go back to? I said, because if you look in Luke, in Matthew, you find a genealogy. You find Jesus. You find that they were, from an earthly perspective, have Joseph and Mary. They had parents. I said, were they real people? And he confirmed that he felt they were. Just to turn the pace down, it's just booming a little bit. Just a second. So we went from talking of Jesus' parents and went back and said, how far can we go? I said, can we get back? I said, well, this is Abraham. Oh, no. He said, there's no evidence Abraham was a real person. I said, well, what about David, King David? Would you accept? I was just trying to understand what hit you believe. And, and the bottom line is even people like David, he said there's no evidence as far as he was concerned to suggest they're real people. At which point we kind of concluded that we really weren't going to get anywhere with this individual. The sad thing was this was a minister of a church. You know, and, and even worse, that he was getting opportunity to go into schools and to teach in schools and lead assemblies. Something's gone wrong. You know, within the church today, to have ministers that don't believe the Bible, that don't trust the Bible. You know, and we're going to show you this morning that we can trust the Bible absolutely, totally, categorically. Let's just look at this, this chapter, because I've said already that this is an incredible chapter. Uh, I'm just going to read some of the, the texts as we go through. So uh, we're told in verse, chapter 5, verse 1, this is the book of the generations 
of Adam. You may remember, I've mentioned already, there's that word uh, tolida in the Hebrew there. And that's used a number of times in the book. And it seems to always set a kind of a marker point. And seemingly what we have here is a collection of writings that Moses later compiled and put into the book that we now call Genesis. And they were then put into what was called the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And so it would seem that those opening chapters that we've, we've got are actually given to us by Adam that was then passed down to subsequent generations. And when we see this idea carrying through the book, this is, uh, this is the book of the generations of Adam in the day that God created man in the likeness of God made him. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. It's interesting that when Adam was created, as we've said already, Adam was created as perfect male and female in one. Eve wasn't created until we get to the Garden of Eden, after the, the seventh day. But verse 3 says, And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son and his own likeness after his uh, image and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he'd begotten Seth were 800 years and he begot sons and daughters and all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Now we see that going all the way through this. Again in verse 8, uh, speaking there, it is the, the end of the sentence is, and he died. Okay, and you go to verse 11, at the end of verse 11, and he died. We see the results of sin and death. This chapter shows us a number of things, but one of the things it shows us is our own mortality. God had intended for Adam and Eve originally to be eternal in the state they were in because of the fall. Sin entered and death came because of that sin. And so it's a chapter really that, that brings us face to face with that reality that we need a saviour. But we'll see in a short while that in this chapter there is an incredible declaration about that coming saviour. But before we go any further, because if you notice as we go into this, we've got some incredibly long time scales, lifespans. Verse 3 again, going back, Adam lived 130 years and began a son in his own likeness and called his name Seth. Now Cain and Abel have been born previous to this, but a 930-year-old. And, it says, and the days of Adam, after he got Seth, were, were 800 years, sorry, he begat sons and daughters. All the days that Adam lived for, sorry, 930 years is a total lifespan of Adam. And then we've got all the ones down to this list, 912 years. All the days of Enos in verse 11, five, sorry, uh, were, were 905 years. And, you know, the question is, in today's world, can we really take that seriously? Well, a couple of things I would point out is that the Bible tells us that God had created Adam perfect. There was no sickness initially. There was no genetic mutations, corruptions, problems with our genes. The world was also a very different place. And we know historically that once the oxygen content, the oxygen level on Earth was much higher than it is now. We've got good evidence for that. So the Earth was a very different place. That would certainly have a big impact on how long you can live. If you take away all of the the sickness and everything else and you put man in a paradise-type environment where everything is just right and seemingly, as we've already looked at, there was some sort of water canopy around the earth protecting the earth from, from the radiation. It's not really surprising that people would live longer. But still, people will take this and they'll scoff at it. We've got in chapter 5, 10 generations that go from Adam all the way down to Noah. And from the chronology that's given there, we've actually got a time span of 1,656 years that, that go, take us 
from creation to the flood. Okay, so just a little over 1,500 years, this, t- this period of time from when God created up until the time we get to the flood. And yet, again, the critics will tell us that these are impossibly long lifespans. So really, again, can we take it seriously? Again, you look there, you can see this. This will be on the website later. We'll put the, the slides up so you can look back at them if you want to. You know, it really is quite, quite something, even for us to think of. Of course, we've got Methuselah, the oldest man recorded in Scripture, 969 years He'll live for almost a thousand years. It's interesting, we'll look at him in a moment, but his life seems to be an example intentionally given to us that speaks of the long-suffering of God. Well, surprisingly, there is some historical verification. In Acts 14, 17, there's a, a line there that just says, Nevertheless, he, speaking of God, left himself not without witness. God will never leave himself without witness. There's lots of examples we could give in Scripture of this. Without going off on a tangent, I'm going to stop myself from, from going down this because some really exciting things where we see God has provided witnesses to testify of things throughout history. But we have now, in the, because of archaeological discoveries in the 19th century, a number of cuneiform tablets and prisms and cylinders and so on. That's one of them you're looking at there. Uh, that's known as the WB444 or the World Blundell Prism. It's actually now in the Ashmolean Museum up in Oxford. But this is an incredible find from an archaeological perspective because on this prism, what we've got is a a list of kings that lived and reigned before the flood. It's known as the Sumerian king list. Now, there's a number of others that corroborate this. It's not just one um, find we've had archaeologically-wise. We've got a number of um, other tablets and things. Some of them are in better conditions than others, but this is certainly one of the, the, the key ones. Now, Interestingly, there was already a very well-known list that was actually recorded by the Babylonian priest, Barossus. Now, Barossus lived um, about 300 years before Jesus, and he translated this list that apparently he had into Greek around about 280 BC. He did it for Antiochus I, his king at the time, um, who was one of the successors of Alexander the Great, when Alexander died, his empire was divided into four parts. One of those parts was taken by Antiochus I. And Antiochus had requested that this list be translated into Greek, so they have a Greek copy. And the critics have generally regarded that list as very spurious. They attribute it to mythology, and they didn't take it very seriously at all. Until, of course, now we find other lists all corroborating. So now they have to think again. You see, this this Sumerian king list has shed new light on the validity of Barossus' list, but also on the biblical account. Critics don't like this at all. The Sumerian king list, it's not a list, by the way, of the ten generations that we have recorded in Genesis 5. On on some lists you've got ten kings before the flood, on others there's eight. But either way, uh, it's not supposed to be a list, or doesn't seem to be, of the characters and the people mentioned in Genesis but seemingly there were other kings that had got various regions that they'd ruled over in that period before the flood. But it does corroborate the Genesis account in a number of ways. One of the things that's said in these, uh, on these tablets and this prism and so on is that we have these eight kings, so ten depending on which list you're looking at, who ruled over five cities before the flood swept there over. And they're all in agreement that all of these things were destroyed by a flood. Now these things date way, way back into antiquity. Now, after the flood, the list also records there was a dramatic decrease in the lifespans when compared to the kings that had reigned before the flood, just as 
we have in the Genesis account. Now, critics, which are, of course, ever struggling to hold their ground, point out that the ages of the kings in the list are impossible. Okay, so not only do they question Genesis, but they look at the ages on this list and say they couldn't have been. Because the oldest numerical value we're given is 43,200. And they said, well, of course, that's just nonsense. That's just fabrication. But, of course, the critics, despite knowing some of these things, choose to ignore it and only publish information that they want us to hear to hopefully discredit the Bible in their eyes. Because the numerical value we're given, they apply years to that numerical value. But there's no suggestion in any of these tablets or documents that they're talking about years. In actual fact, they had different measures of measuring time. One of them known as the Saros, or more specifically in the case here, as Sarai. Now, Barosus gives us this number, a total number of units of 432,000. Now, of course, if that was years, we would probably all of us dismiss it. But he's not talking about years. Never does Barosus mention years in the way he's reckoning or counting. But that's that time, that, that, that frame we're given for that pre-flood era is 432,000. Now, the Sumerians used a sexagesimal system. That's using 60 as your base. Okay, we, we have a decimal system using 10 as our base. But they counted in 60s. Bill Cooper, and again, if you want to get a copy, we've got a copy of this. And so this is taken from his Authenticity of the Book of Genesis. Um, but in that, he says, he says, well, it says 60 months equals five years. And if we divide the 432,000 by five, we're left with a product of 86,400, which, he says, happens also to be the number of weeks in the 1656 years Genesis gives us. It's exactly the same. Now, that's no coincidence. He says again, <clears throat> Barosus wasn't giving us a period of time measured in years, but one that is measured in lunar months and the seven-day units of those months. We've got it given to us in weeks, and it exactly corroborates with what the book of Genesis tells us. Again, Bill says, So once again, and in distinct contradiction to all that the modernists say, Genesis shows itself to be older and by far the purer account. Moreover, the longevity of its patriarchs a point of much scoffing in the modernist camp. It seemed to be corroborated to a surprising degree by two independent and very ancient sources, referring to not only Barosis's but these other finds that we now have. Incredible. Once again, the Bible does stand. Now, I want to move on because God has given us another witness. We've got historical testimony to support Scripture. But there's also other ways that God has authenticated his word to show us that it really is from him. It's not a contrivance or a fraud. Proverbs 25 verse 2 tells us this. It's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. We're all kings and priests, scripturally, so our duty is to search things out, particularly in scripture. But we're told here something very interesting. He says God conceals things. So the question is, what is it that God has concealed? Well, there's a number of things that are concealed within the text of the Bible. And we're going to look at those, one of those this morning. Let me just start with a little conundrum for you. Who's the oldest man in the Bible? Already told you that this morning, if you're paying attention. Methuselah. He lived for 969 years. And yet we have a problem, because he died before his father. The question is, how can that be? Well, simple answer to the question is, people forget who his father was. His father was Enoch. At age 65, something happens in his life. We're not given specific details. We're then told that he walks with God for 300 years. But what... We do know is that he has this son 
who he names Methuselah. Now it's really interesting because Methuselah, the name Methuselah is made up of two Hebrew words. It comes part, the first part from the root muth, that means death. And the second part, shalak, which means to bring or to send forth. So literally, Methuselah's name means his death shall bring or his death shall send forth. Which is just interesting in itself. I said a moment ago that God seemingly intended Methuselah's life to be testimony to God's own faithfulness and perseverance and long-suffering and so on. Because when we look at Methuselah's life, when he was 187, and we'll see this in the list in a moment as we go through Genesis 5, he has a son called Lamech. When Lamech is 182 years old, he has a son called Noah. Now, if you add it all together, you get the 969 years of Methuselah's life, which happens to be exactly the same as the 600th year of Noah's life, and it was in the 600th year of Noah's life that the flood came. His name, Methuselah's name means, his death shall bring. And the very year, and I would suspect, although we're not given that detail here, but I would suspect it was even probably the very day, knowing how precise God is, and we see these things in scripture. But certainly the very year that Methuselah died, the flood came. You know, it's been pointed out before that when people got to know Methuselah and they find out what his name means, of course, you know, his death shall bring. Whenever he got a cold, people were probably a little bit edgy. Whenever he was feeling unwell, what is his death going to bring? What's going to happen? Well, eventually they did find out. Now, some time ago, a New Zealand evangelist by the name of Barry Smith uh, used to speak a lot about uh, end times, talking about the rapture and so on. Um, he used to take this chapter and go through, and looking at all those things we were looking at, and he died, and he died, and he died, getting as far as way down in that list to Enoch. And we get the congregation to repeat back, and I'm not going to do this to you this morning, and everybody's going, and he died. But we get to Enoch, and we find that he doesn't die, because we find that he's translated. We'll look at this in just a second. So let's go through the text. There's some interesting things to pull out. So this is the book of the generations of Adam. So I've explained that already. There's this Hebrew word told. That seems to be a new section. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. We've seen that already, that God made man in his image. That's the thing that really riled Satan, because Satan was not made in the image of God. Satan wanted to be like God, but he wasn't. Adam was like God. Male and female created them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. Now notice verse 3. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness. You see, man, Adam, was made in the likeness of God, but Adam's offspring were in his own likeness and after his image. Everything had changed. Adam was a direct creation of God. And we read in Romans chapter 5 that Jesus is the second Adam. According to the flesh part, Jesus was made by God. His body just the same as Adam's body. Adam and Jesus both started off in a sense in the same place. They both came into this world without sin. Adam of course failed and brought death into the world. Jesus through obedience gave his life and then brought restoration, resurrection life again. But interesting to note, Adam and his offspring, including us, are made after Adam's likeness, after Adam's image. And we're told that his name is called Seth. Now, we've already seen that names have meanings in Scripture. Adam, no surprise, the name means man. That's exactly what Adam means. It means man. We go on, and the days of Adam after he begotten Seth were 800 years, and he begat sons and daughters. 
The world is starting to, to fill up. People are being born and spreading out. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. There we go. But then we're told, and Seth lived 105 years and begat Enos. Now, Seth also, his name has a meaning. It actually means appointed. Because when he's born, if you remember back, Eve makes that comment, saying, the Lord has appointed me another heir to replace Abel who was killed by Cain. So Seth, his name means appointed. Genesis 4, 25, that scripture I just mentioned there. And Seth, verse 7, lived after he begat Enos 807 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Enos, his name means mortal or frail or miserable. Why would you name your child that? But nevertheless, he did. But interestingly, and we see this a lot, particularly in Scripture and and for the Jews, they often give their children names that have meaning, that have purpose, that that give some sort of explanation. Now, we mentioned it, I think, last session when we were going through in chapter 4, that there's a a number of other ancient translations which render the the verse slightly differently back in Genesis 4.26 because it says, Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. What we miss there in the translation into the English is they're not just calling on God as you would think of calling out or crying out to God. The Onkelos translation, an ancient translation, actually renders it, then man began to profane the name of the Lord. You know, we're only a few steps down from Adam and already man was going astray. Man was starting to blaspheme God's name, even at this early stage. And so it's kind of no wonder then that this child is named mortal, frail, miserable. People are starting to die, and yet people are crying out. And maybe that was even part of it. Maybe people were seeing loved ones die and blaming God and turning away from God. You know, tragedy often in our lives does one of two things. It can either drive us closer to God or it can drive us away from God, depending on our perspective. Some people blame God. There's an individual I know who's very, very bitter towards God because his wife is suffering. She's got a, a terminal illness. And he's very bitter. I've spoken to him a number of times about God. And every time, why would God do that to my wife? She's done nothing wrong. Well, that's just symptomatic of many people in the world. But in this early earth, as these things are starting to, to unfold, as life is kind of spreading out, as I was saying, well, people were seeing others dying. It may well have been that was part of the reason that some people were turning away from God. But anyway, this individual, Enos, makes sense of his name. We understand why he's given this name, mortal, frail, miserable. The the root of the word is anash in the Hebrew, and it just means to be incurable. Used of a wound, grief, woe, sickness, or wickedness. And of course, sin is an incurable disease. Just like leprosy was in the Old Testament. But of course, Jesus... Not only would heal lepers, he would deal with the bigger problem of sin as well. And we're told Enos lived 90 years and begat Canaan. And Enos lived after he begat Canaan 815 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enos were 905 years and he died. So now we're introduced to Canaan. <clears throat> Some people misconfuse this and think it's Canaan. It's not Canaan uh, in that sense. It's nothing to do with the land of Canaan and so on. But his name, similar theme really, means sorrow, dirge. Or elegy, again, like a, a mournful, sorrowful poem. It's uh, 
the roots of his name. And Canaan lived 70 years and begat Mahalaleel. Now things look better this time. I'll show you in a second. Canaan lived after he begat Mahalaleel 840 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Canaan were 910 years and he died. Now Mahalaleel is a good name. If we ever had a boy, this would be the name I'd want. I'm not sure whether, whether Joy would go with that. But this is a great name because it means the two parts of the, the, the words. The first part is blessed or praised and then L at the end there means God. It's the name of God. We see that L ending on a number of names. Daniel. God is my judge and so on. A number of names of scripture have that L uh, attached to it and it just has the name of God there. So his name really means the blessed God. What a great name that is. Even in the midst of all this darkness and despair, in the midst of all these people that are dying and and the, the sorrow that's around the world at this point, there's still hope. Because God, as you remember back in Genesis 3.15, had promised a seed. That there would be one who would be coming. He would sort this mess out. And Mahalalil lived 60 and 5 years and begat Jared. Mahalalil lived after he begat Jared 830 years and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Mahalalil were 890 and 5 years and he died. So now we're introduced to his son Jared. Jared, Yared in the, the, the Hebrew, more precise, comes from a verb yada, which means shall come down. Now it's interesting because a number of commentators and scholars think that it is during this period of time, during the, the lifespan leading up to the birth of, of Jared, where the, ange- the angels that had rebelled with Satan started to infiltrate the world and started having relationships with the women of the earth, and their offspring were the giants. We'll look at them when we get to chapter 6. Something that some people still struggle with, but it's clearly what the Bible says. Not just Old Testament, but New Testament as well. It's confirmed in many places. That these angels came down and had relationships with the women of the earth, and the offspring were these giant beings, of which every culture around the world has got legends and stories. And that should indicate that there's something to it, there's more to it. A friend of ours back in Kent, is a, a ex-school teacher, deputy head, and I had a lot of interesting conversations because for years he was interested in Greek mythology. And when I got to teach this some years ago, we were having a good long conversation, and he was seeing how even all Greek mythology has had its roots going back into the things that the Bible speaks of. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. But Yared, his name means shall come down. Something was happening at this time on earth. We carry on though, and Jared lived 162 years, and he begat Enoch. And Jared lived after he begat Enoch 800 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. So now we come to Enoch. Now Enoch, the name means commencement or teaching. Both ideas come through the Hebrew roots for this name. And we get that picked up for us in the book of Jude. In Jude verse 14 and 15, it says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and all of their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And we get the idea here that Jude's laboring this point about the ungodly here. But he identifies here that Enoch is one who was a prophet, was a teacher. 
And this is amazing because this is one of the earliest prophecies we have in the Bible and it's a prophecy of the second coming of Jesus. Because notice what Enoch prophesies. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. In order for the saints to come with Jesus, they must first have gone to be with him. And this, of course, is borne out throughout the New Testament. As we mentioned briefly earlier as we were praying, but in John 14... Jesus made a very clear statement there that he was going back to his father. And he said, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, just as a a Jewish groom would do. They would go back to their father's house. They would build an annex onto the side of the house to get ready for the bride to come and to dwell with them. And Jesus says, just as a a Jewish groom would have done, that he's going to come again. Just a a Jewish groom would come at an unannounced time. There would be the blowing of the chauffeur, the ram's horn. And the bride would know that, interestingly, the bride doesn't know exactly the day or the hour that the groom's going to come back with the Jewish wedding. But she knows she has to be ready and waiting. During the time where the groom is away, a Jewish bride would be preparing herself. There's a thing called the mikvah, it's like a ritual bath they have, and all nail polish and anything man-made, jewellery and so on is removed. Everything of this world is taken away. They have an attendant, a Jewish bride, to look after them, to help them through this process, to get them ready. Well, isn't that an incredible picture of the Holy Spirit has come to get us ready for our wedding day? Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us there is coming a day when the Lord is going to come back. There's going to be that blowing of the trumpet and Jesus will come and claim his bride, take her back to the place that he's been preparing for her. Incredibly, for some reason, a lot of the church still have a problem with the idea of the rapture. But it's clearly what the Bible teaches. You know, and it makes so much sense when you start to look at the entirety of Scripture that God will take his people out of this world before he brings judgment. So many examples. Of course, with Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, God had to remove Lot before the judgment would come. With the righteous in Israel at the time of the Babylonian invasion and later destruction, God took the righteous away, protected them, and then later brought them back. Or so the Lord will do with his bride. The church will be taken out of this world and then this world will enter a time of judgment, of God's wrath, unlike anything ever seen. And so many of the Old Testament scriptures will speak of these events that are coming. But this verse here just tells us again that when the Lord does return at the time of the second coming, it won't be to collect his saints, he'll be coming back with them to set up his kingdom, to rule and reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And we're told, Paul tells us, that the saints will be given responsibility. We will rule and reign with him. But the other purpose, of course, if he's coming back, is, as we've just said a moment ago, to execute judgment upon all. And that's another reason why the church has to be removed first. Because we will not be subject to God's wrath during that time of tribulation. You see, the wrath that we were due fell upon Christ upon the cross. Jesus took the punishment for our sin. And he cried out, to tell us die, paid in full, all done. We don't have to stay for any moment of that tribulation period. It's all paid for by Jesus. But for those that have not put their trust in Jesus, well, they will have to answer to God. And again, no one can stand. There's none that are righteous, no, not one. So this incredible prophecy that, that Enoch gives us, <clears throat> what we find is that from this, we know that the Lord's coming is sure. And we know who will accompany the Lord, that will be his saints. Uh, We know the purpose of his coming to execute judgment on those that have turned against him. 
and also know the result. The Lord will establish his kingdom. Now, just another interesting thing here. Enoch was translated, or rapture, if you will, at the height of apostasy in that period of time before the flood between Adam and Noah. Elijah is another individual we come upon in Scripture who also didn't die. He was taken up alive into heaven. And again, he is ministering at the height of apostasy in Israel, the time of just such rebellion against God. Ahab and Jezebel and all that, and Mount Carmel incident and so on, where Elijah tries to bring the hearts of the people back to God. But Elijah is taken at that point. And I believe from what we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, that they're models given to us for our instruction. And as Paul says, upon whom the ends of the world are come. We should be able to learn from these things. Some of these are arguably some of those things that have been concealed, that have been hidden in Scripture, that the more we seek and look at, we see these models. The Bible is incredible, the models that we see throughout, all pointing to the reality that is yet to come in many of the instances. We carry on. And Enoch lived 65 years and begat Methuselah, and Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God. What a change. Not Enoch died. All the others at that point is, and he died. But Enoch walked with God. What a statement. Wouldn't you like that phrase to be recorded against your name for eternity? Enoch walked with God. And we're told, and he was not, for God took him. He didn't die a natural death. He was just walking in fellowship and harmony with God, and God just took him home. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 5, it says, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found. Because God had translated him. But before his translation, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. Again, what a beautiful statement, a wonderful thing to be written of any individual. But recorded in God's word, there's this statement that he not walked with God and that he pleased God. It wasn't just a casual stroll either. For 300 years, he was walking with God. And Amos 3.3 just says, can two walk together except they be agreed? The fact that they were walking shows that there was this agreement. It wasn't God agreeing to anything Enoch was saying. It was Enoch agreeing to live his life in obedience and surrender to God. And what a witness he is to us. But you know, the privilege is available today to you and I. We also can walk with God in just the same way that Enoch did. You know, and I'd encourage you again to go back and review the study we did in Psalm 119. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies, that seek him with a whole heart. They shall also do no iniquity, they walk in his ways. So Psalm 119 tells us, it's just a great psalm about walking with God. If you struggle in your walk with God, if you struggle with temptation, if you struggle with anything, just go to Psalm 119. I encourage you again, you know, just just take a verse a day and meditate on it. Just allow the Lord just to to transform your minds. It's a psalm that speaks so much about God's word, how important God's word is, and it's a great thing to try and commit to memory. Well, Methuselah, we've already seen again. His name means his death shall bring. <clears throat> Methuselah lived 187 years. We got Lamech. Lamech, so Methuselah lived after he begat Lamech, 782 years begat sons and daughters, and all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. And he dies, and when he dies, it's the year of the flood. The flood comes. 
But of course, Lamech, his son, actually dies before Methuselah. Lamech, his name, comes from a word we still have in English, the word lament. It just means lamentation. It's the the meaning of, of his name. Also has this idea of despairing. And Lamech lived 182 years and begat a son. And he called his name Noah. And again, it's just interesting the way that the Lord engineers this. Because he says, this same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands. Because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. You know, I wonder whether Lamech, when he and his wife were naming this little baby boy, and they called him Noah, I wonder what they thought. I wonder if they had an inclination that God was going to do something really special with this baby one day. Because they called him Noah. And all this death and sorrow and sadness and so on, there's only a couple of glimmers of, of light in that list we've gone through. But all of that, and they named their son Comfort. I wonder what they, they understood. I wonder what they knew. I wonder what their expectation was of what the Lord was going to do. But still, that hope that was born in Genesis 3.15 was alive. That God was going to bring a savior. Well, Noah, again, the word comes from Nachem in the Hebrew. It just means to bring relief to comfort. Rest is the idea as well. And so we've got our, our list of these names that are all recorded for us here. <clears throat> Adam, Seth. Enosh, again, sadness and despair in all these. Canaan, Mahalalel, that's the good one, that's the blessed God. Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. And as we've seen, we've all got all of these names have means. We started looking at Methuselah. But every name in this list has a meaning. And it was very applicable to the times, the days in which each individual lived in. Ending, of course, with Noah whose name would be comfort. Now, I don't know whether you see it there, but if we were to put those names into a sentence, you have this. Man is appointed, mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching his death shall bring the despairing comfort and rest. That's the Christian gospel in a genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. God said he conceals things in his word that it's the duty of kings to go and seek out. Now there's no way you'll ever convince me that some Jewish scribe or rabbi contrived to put that list together and to hide it there for us. But it's there. It's there as a testimony to the whole world that God's word is true. That God's word really is from him. It's not a contrivance of man. Because every one of those individuals were given names applicable to their own situation and time. And yet when we put that together, the whole of the story of man leading up to the flood is really one of hope. Although we see death and despair and sorrow, we see that man was appointed mortal sorrow on account of our sin. But it was the blessed God himself that came down, teaching that his death, the death of God, the death of Jesus shall bring those who are despairing, those who are lost, those who are dead in trespasses and sins, comfort and rest. That's staggering. It's been said that the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. You see it. We've just seen it there. The Christian gospel message concealed in Genesis 5. And that the Old Testament 
is in the New Testament revealed. Because I don't think any one of those individuals would have understood that, that their name was part of something dramatic that God was constructing and building. But of course now when we look back, we see these things. You know, we live at such a privileged time in history that we can look back and see these things. I don't know what you're going to do with it, but there's another interesting observation that Noah was the tenth in line from Adam. Abraham then was the tenth following on from that. And then Boaz, all these key individuals in their lines. What should we do with it? But it's more evidence that God is designing every single detail, every single number, every single place name in the Bible is there by deliberate supernatural design. And then we read, And Lamech lived after he begat Noah 595 years and begat sons and daughters, and all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. And Noah was 500 years old. And Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Interesting, even just looking at the, the days of Lamech, 777, 777. I'm not sure whether you, you've seen much or understand much about numerology in the Bible. It's just simply the way that God consistently uses numbers. And the number seven always has this idea of complete. We see it even in nature. Of course, we've got seven days in our week. We've got seven notes in a musical scale. And then the eighth note, of course, beginning the new beginning, the beginning of the new octave. Uh, there's sevens everywhere. And God has interwoven sevens into scripture in so many ways. You've only got to look through the book of Revelation to see sevens everywhere. Seven churches, seven lampstands, seven bowls of wrath, seven trumpets, and, and, so, and so on. But here, we get to Lamech, lived 777 years. And in a sense, that was complete. That was that period before the, the flood. And then we come, of course, to Noah. And Noah is the one that we're told was perfect in his generations. That doesn't mean that Noah was without sin. It doesn't mean that Noah was a perfect man. It's not saying that. It means he was genetically pure. He hadn't had this, his line hadn't been infiltrated by these giant beings, by the Nephilim. We'll talk more about that next week. And God chooses Noah, a man who is humble, who is obedient, who is faithful. And through Noah and his children, brings this new start which ultimately then will lead down to the family of Abraham. We then have the nation of Israel leading ultimately down to the Messiah. So next week, read ahead, we're going to be looking chapter 6 onwards. Why did God send the flood? We'll answer that question. And what did Jesus mean when he said to us in Matthew 24, 37, that as the days of Noah were, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be? A provocative statement of Jesus. We'll look at what maybe that was referring to. And then the question, who really were these Nephilim? And there's some surprising discoveries that make sense of so many other things when we start to see those things laid out for us in Scripture. So that's where we're going next week. Please read ahead. Let's just bow our hearts, shall we? Well, Father, thank you once again for your word. We thank you for these incredible details that are there that could not have been engineered by man. The Lord demonstrates to us that your word really truly is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of the living God to his creation. Oh, and Lord, we do well to treasure these things, to hold them in our hearts. Lord, to read your word, to study your word. That, Father, you've called us to be kings and priests. Well, then, Lord, let us search for these things you've concealed. And, Lord, may we be stirred and edified and encouraged thereby. Father, we thank you that even in this chapter that speaks so much of death there is the promise of life that you would come and bring those that were despairing comfort and rest 
and Lord, how we can find our rest in you. So we just thank you for these things now. Lord, be with us as we go from here. Lord, bless our time of fellowship now over teas and coffees. And Father, as we go through this week, may we keep our eyes firmly fixed upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. As in his name, we ask these things. Amen. May God richly bless you through this coming week.